out, I misspelled it, your nemesis. I'm not making this up. Shall submit themselves to you. The abundance of your strength will cause your enemies, the languages, to cringe. But the very literal is to feign obedience. You're so awesome that even though your enemies hate your guts, they've got to bow the knee in submission to you and at least mouth words of obedience and submission. And we know from Philippians that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So look down at your knees and tell them, knees, you're going down one of these days. You might as well go down now. You can go down now in awesome surrender to the Lord and what he has done, or you will go down in forced submission. And you will feign obedience, and you will declare him to be the Lord of all the earth before he sends you to hell for all eternity. That's Bible. At his name, even his enemies will bow down and worship him, even if it is a feigned obedience. The psalm says in 81.15, the haters of the Lord would pretend submission. Fourth, bow down. Also what my friend would say to me as he was doing a judo chokehold on me. Bow down. Say it. Okay. Are you a Christian? All the earth, verse 4, shall worship you and sing praise to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Who will do this? All the earth. What will they do? Worship. The word worship means to bow down in worship. And in the Greek, though we're in Hebrew right now, the Greek is proskuneo, which means to bow down and kiss toward. That's what worship is. And so while we're here on a Sunday and we're worshiping with music, or as you're worshiping, you know, as you're listening to the music or through prayer, or, you know, we worship the Lord in whatever we do, are you bowing down and kissing the Lord in that? Is that your heart attitude when these things are happening and we're worshiping God? Are you bowing down and kissing him? The heart of the Lord is that all the earth will bow down and worship and sing praise, sing praises to your name. All the earth. When we were in Nepal the first time, so two years ago or two trips ago, we went up to, uh, it was where our Jeep trip ended after the enemy had tried to keep us out of Nepal through blizzards and storms and canceled flights. We finally get there, we start our trekking, our Jeep up into the mountains hits a rock and uh, busts the fuel tanks open and so we dump out all our jerky and we're underneath there like, uh, you know, catching all our diesel fuel up in the Himalayas and, uh, you know, we're like, what can we do? And we're getting flip-flops off the side of the road and jamming them in, you know, between the spare tire holder. And then we're using bars of soap and we're just MacGyvering this thing back together and filling up the crack and, you know, finally get it going again. Fuel smelled like beef jerky. It was beautiful. It was delicious. <laughs> but as the enemy was trying to keep us out of there, we made it up to this little village called Gumdel. And there at uh, Goomdell, where's Sean Vaughn? It's Goomdell, right? You're Sean? What? That's it. You tell him. That's it. 
Nobody knows Connor? Nothing? Okay, Goomdell. I wanted to just make sure I was saying the right word. And uh, we got to Goomdell, and there was this kind of white, looked like almost Little House on the Prairie type, you know, mansion type thing. It was a tall three-story building, whitewashed, and seemed like it would be pretty pleasant. But what, this whole giant room off the side of this house was up in the Himalayas, given over to worshiping Buddha and the spirits and calling on demons to come inhabit their lives so they would have power over other demons. And there was this giant prayer bell, probably 15 feet in circumference. And they would spin this and just let their prayers be heard through the spinning of this bell. And the minute we got there, our whole team just was just feeling the presence of wickedness and demonic activity going on there. And I'm 34, I was 33 at the time, and the old Rory bladder's getting a little small in the middle of the night, and I knew that I'd be getting up and walking through this house in the middle of the night by myself, and I was scared. I'm like, I have to go potty tonight. There's demons. You know, I was scared. And the rest of the team, Luke, our guide, we sit there and we're getting food, some food ready, and he's like, guys, we need to pray. Because I don't know if you know or you sense it, there's darkness around us right now. And it was just, you could like taste it. It was like a mist around you or something. And we prayed and cried out to the Lord and it was gone. And I got up in the middle of the night. And the third story, squatty potty, wasn't working. And the second story, squatty potty, wasn't working. And I had to go out into this courtyard, the Himalaya mountains around me, all by myself, where I had been terrified walking up to it. And the Lord spoke to me, Malachi 1.1. From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles in every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And as I walked out into that courtyard, that came over me, and I had no fear because I knew who ruled. And that one day, though this is a place given over to darkness, light will shine here. This is the heart of the Lord that the nations would know and hear the gospel. Spurgeon says, It was an instance of willful ignorance and bigotry when the Jews raged against the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Perverted Judaism may be exclusive, but the religion of Moses and David and Isaiah are not so. And Spurgeon goes on to say there's a reason, there's a selah at the end of this verse. A little pause. For holy expectation is well inserted after such a great prophecy and the uplifting of the heart is also a seasonable direction. No meditation can be more joyous than the exciting prospect of a world reconciled to its creator. Nothing's more excited than that. And that is a heart that God has birthed in our church. Oh man, when we hear tales from the mission field of nations being reconciled to their creator, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. Fourth, see. Verse five, come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing 
toward the sons of men. So let's come and see. Let's walk around and have a walkabout to understand these things. Let's take the time to look at his doing towards the son of men and inspect his deeds. Reading a book right now called Eternity in Their Hearts. Title taken from Ecclesiastes, how he has put eternity in the hearts of men. And in this book are the stories of world evangelists who go out to these tribes in India and these tribes down in South America, these deep, unreached places. And the stories are told that through their paganism and even through their false religions, God is working something good and that he is preparing their hearts through even their false stories, to hear the true and better story of the creator of the world who loved them and died for them and wants to save them from their sins and reconcile them to himself. All around the world this is happening. And that's why Paul was able to say when he went to Athens and he walked around the city and he saw that this city is given over to idols, but there is one shrine, a shrine to the unknown God. And the story is, if I'm remembering it correctly, I'm doing my best here. The story is that there was a plague going through Greece and going through Athens. And a prophet came centuries before Jesus and basically said that there was to be the slaughtering of this lamb. And this lamb was going to bring an end to the plague and bring life back to Greece. And it would be this God that you've never heard of out of all of your pantheons of gods. He's the one that's going to heal. And he healed this nation. And they set up a shrine to him to worship him. And Paul took the opportunity, no doubt sharing the story of the lamb that was slain, to heal the curse and the plague upon all humanity. When you hear of God's doing with men and women in these remote villages and tribes... We declare his doing on the sons of men. Listening to another book this week called The Insanity of God. It's a book that we were given over at the Birmingham Missions Conference. And it's a, it's a story of a man who went on missions to Somalia and things were so dark and so demonic and there was so much hatred, so much persecution of Christians. There's like no Christians there. This is back during the Black Hawk Down days and Mogadishu and all of that's going on and people are starving and warlords are ruling. And this missionary just came to the point where he said, I don't know that I can say that, that God's love is better than hatred or stronger than hatred. Hatred is ruling here. I don't know that his life is better than this death and stronger than this death. Death is ruling here. I've been years here and nothing good is happening. And he went out and set out to interview Christians in persecuted countries who would be put in prison for 17 years and beaten and tortured and families killed. And he heard their testimonies of how the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus does indeed overcome the wickedness that's out there. If I had time today to tell you these stories, man, it would be just wonderful. But as this missionary interviewed these men and women, he said, why have you not written a book about all that has happened? People need to hear this stuff. And these persecuted men looked at him very seriously and said, have you not read your Bible? 
When have you stopped reading your Bible? And then there was moments of like awkward silence. So, when did you stop reading your Bible? These stories are written in the Bible. God has given us these stories and that's all we need. When did you stop reading your Bible? And then the guy turned around and walked off. Like, when have you stopped reading your Bibles? We'll see in a little bit in our psalm that the testimonies of the redeemed are wonderful and glorious and are to be said, but let's not forget he's written down the tales of his wonderful doing among men. His awesome, he is awesome in his doing towards the son of men and it causes him to be feared. The nature and work of God will be the theme of the earth's universal song. Verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. Do you remember it? They went through the river on foot. Do you remember it? The Red Sea, the Jordan River crossing. There we will rejoice in him. There are times in our prayer meetings here at the church where as we worship and sing, we just, we stop and we just start declaring the wonderful works that God has done. And more often than not, the Red Sea crossing comes up in our declaring of his wonderful things that he's done. And as you read the Old Testament, that just keeps happening. Red Sea, the Red Sea, the Red Sea. Sea went up, you caused a wind to come in the night, and that wind pushed the sea in half and made a wall uh, on both sides of this, this highway through the middle of the sea, and the children of Israel went through on dry land. This was a path that was fit for a nation to go through overnight. And as Pharaoh's army came in hot pursuit behind, it says the Lord saw the army, and as the last children escaped, he caused the walls to crumble. Well, before the walls came down, he had their wheels come off on their chariots so that it made it hard to go. We still have some hope, guys. Let's get them. Yeah, yeah. He got nothing. <laughs> Every last one of them died. After the event, Moses' sister Miriam wrote a song about it and used a tambourine. She was a bit of a hippie. Moses sung a song about it. Part of the song says, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. We see in the book of Revelation that the redeemed church will sing the song of Moses. This wasn't the only time that the Lord took a great body of water and split it in half and let his people go through on dry ground. When the children of Israel went into the promised land, the Jordan River was at its flood zone. And the people of Israel were told to follow the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant through the Jordan River. And it says that the minute their ankles went into the water, the priests' ankles, the water parted, and the children of Israel went across on dry ground. We would do well to remember that with our children when times of trial come into our home and we're gathered together to pray as a family or when our kids are struggling and hurting or when our wife is stressed. Let's retell the deeds of the Lord. 
How wonderful that you can put on some sweet scuba gear down at Elot and you can go into the Red Sea and you'll find chariots and chariot wheels that are covered over with barnacles and little fish swimming through them. Where did those come from? Some guy flew a helicopter over and dumped a bunch of chariots out. That's all I got. There's wonderful evidence for the deeds of the Lord. Verse 7, he rules by his power forever. As we remember what God has done, we know that we are united in his purpose in history. He rules now, and in that, we will rule with him. We too stand at the Red Sea. We too stand at the Jordan River. We too stand at Mount Calvary and have his sacrifice imputed to our account. We too stand at the empty tomb where his resurrection and glorious power is imputed to us and we too are resurrected in the here and in the then. We will walk in resurrection power and we now walk in newness of life. The scriptures, time and time again, tell of the wonderful, marvelous deeds of God. It's funny because as you read these statements in the scripture, I call them when you statements. Oh Lord, remember when you, remember when you. That's kind of a thing that our culture does right now. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, you see the memes that say, when you do this or do that. I might be shooting in my, myself in the foot right now, but some of them say, you know, when your best friend's standing there with you and your girlfriend comes into the, or your crush walks into the room behind you and, and his face all of a sudden goes. Or when you're an old man at a wedding dance party and your jam comes on and you throw down your crutches and, you know, you guys have seen some of those, right? Well, the Bible has when you statements. Look at Judges 5.2. When the leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, that's not a big deal to us, but it is a big deal to Israel. And the psalm says, bless the Lord when that happens. Lord, Judges 5.4 says, when you went out from Seir, when you marched on the fields of Edom, the earth trembled. And the heavens poured, and the clouds also poured water when you did that. When you. Or Isaiah, when you did awesome things for which we did not look, the mountains shook at your presence. Let's start our own when you statements. When you took me out of the miry pit and delivered me from alcohol addiction, when you delivered me from youthful lusts, where once every eight seconds I had sexual immoral thoughts, and now my thoughts are trained to be put on you in your holiness and purity, when you did that, it's a miracle. When we were barren for 10 years and could not have children, and all of our friends and family around us were having children, and when Jane got pregnant, Last night, we went to a, a baby shower for some dear friends of ours that for 10 years have tried to have children. And then he did it. They have a little baby coming. When you did that, 
And every one of you have stories like that that the world needs to hear. And they will find that, verse 7, he rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Don't let the rebellious exalt themselves. The fifth thing that we do is that we bless. Verse 8, Oh, bless our God, you peoples. Make the voice of his praise to be heard. I love it when David calls his listeners, you people. You people, bless the Lord. Bless our God. Give him praise. All you nations, all you peoples, people groups, plural. It's not just America. He's got peoples in mind. And so we bless the Lord. The sixth thing is that we are to be heard. Remember I said ten things? So you do the math, we're over halfway there. Just calm down. Calm down. Be heard. It says in verse 8, make the voice of his praise to be heard. That's only for pastors. That's only for worship leaders to do. It's for all of the redeemed. It's for all of those who love his salvation. Make the voice of his praise to be heard. We were at a table last night at this shower and we were with two people who were not believers. And they told of their new restaurant in Bend that they're doing and how much work has gone into it and how they were never going to get all the permits through and, and that the guy that was the plumbing permit guy, that he was just, you know, reputation be horrible to deal with and they were never going to have this place open and they were not going to be able to feed their children and it was just, and they just started talking about how like this heart of this man changed. And my wife just said, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I don't know if you're a Christian or not. We don't know if you even believe in God. Turns out they don't. But my wife caused his praise to be heard. Let's not be afraid to do that. Let's be heard. Let's cause his tidings and his good news, his praiseworthy actions to be heard. And Revelation at the end, towards the end of the book, we have what are called the Alleluia Statements. After seeing all of these things and Babylon the great harlot destroyed, heaven shouts out, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. It goes on to say, Praise our God, all of you servants and all those who fear him, both small and great. And he says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. I wasn't at the OSU game last night, but I've been there on the rare occasions when we were winning. And it gets loud. And it gets exciting. And I was there when they used to rush the field and tear the, the field goals down at the end of the game. Do you guys remember that? And it was just, it was in, it was in our good time. It was like 10, 12 years ago or something like that. 14 years ago, probably. <laughs> Maybe longer. And just the, the, sh the shouting and the crowd, it was like the sound of many roaring waters. And that will be the praise that is made for our God. And we will sing out, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. We're to bless him, we're to let the praise of his glory be heard. And verse 9 tells us why we should bless him. 
Verse 9, he keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. He's worth praising because of that. If you've got a pulse, if God has fed you, he loves you more than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. He takes care of you. We're here. We're alive. And man, we are in safety and blessing. We can say that from where we live today. He certainly keeps our soul among the living, and he's worthy to be praised because of that. As Paul says to the Athenians, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. He does not allow our foot to be moved. In him we will never sway or totter. Remember how I said that we have the the things that he has done? We have that in verses 10 through 12. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. God has tested us. And the picture is that of precious metals being melted down in the extreme heat of the furnace so that the impurities would be risen to the top and being able to be skimmed off. The gold or the silver would be found to be precious and pure. And that is the illustration that the Bible uses many times of what he does to his people. He purifies us. He turns up the furnace of affliction in our lives. And he's going to do that in you because he loves you. He's going to do that. And the things that you've gone through, it's been him doing that. Do you know that he's to be blessed because of that, this psalm says? We want to grumble and complain and wonder, what's up? He's like, bless me for this. I'm purifying you. The wisdom proverbs say that the refining pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Job says in the midst of all of his horrible trials, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Isaiah tells us, Behold, I've refined you, and you can look at your own life and see God's refining fire, but not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. And in the New Testament, Peter tells us that we're to be joyful in all of our tribulations. Verse 6 of 1 Peter 1 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Anybody ever been grieved by various trials has a purpose it's so that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of jesus christ he's purifying you he's turning the heat up there's the old song that we used to sing purify my heart let me be as gold and precious silver. Refiner's fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. Set apart for you, my master. Ready to do your will. And Romans tells us in chapter 5, because of that, we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint. Because of the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. All of those tough things that you've gone through, God has been working in the refiner's fire, perseverance, character, hope, 
and that won't disappoint. David writes about the trials they went through. Verse 11, you brought us into a net. You laid affliction on our back. Kind of probably just remembering some of Israel's history, being down in Egypt, being slaves. Verse 12, you've caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. But there's good news to all of it. I was reminded this week of what we call the J-curve. I don't know if you remember this from a few months ago. And that how the gospel takes us through these series of graphs that, that symbolize a J-curve or a check mark. And that there's partaking in the sufferings of Christ and their suffering and affliction and persecution and tribulation and hardships and just going down, 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 just to the point of death. But the gospel is that he never leaves us at death. And he didn't stay at death. And just as he resurrects us, as he was resurrected, there's hope in that. But as we continue this life, it's, it's a series of J-curves. Down and depths and hardship and refining and tribulation and attack. But he brings us out ultimately to have one final swoop of the J-curve. Where we stand with him in heaven for all eternity. The seventh thing we see in verse 13 is that we're to go. We're to go into the house of the Lord. It becomes personal for David as he says, I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. Remember the when you statements? When you were in trouble and your mom used your first and middle name, Rory Blake, when you, yeah, here we have, when I was in trouble, I had nowhere to go and I vowed to the Lord, Lord, if you rescue me from this situation, deliver me from my enemies, bring me out of bankruptcy, cure me of this cancer, heal my marriage, get me out of this Speeding ticket, whatever it might have been. I'll serve you with my whole heart and my whole life. We ought to be very slow in making vows to the Lord. But we ought to be very prompt in making good on them. We see in the scriptures that vows can be right and good when they are done for the glory of God. But we've seen it in the last probably five psalms that we've been in. Make good on those vows. When you go into the house of the Lord, he's going to remind you. Remember when you said? And that might bring to remembrance last week in the park. When it, there was a word from the Lord, from our psalm, that for those that might be agnostics or struggling with unbelief, that the Lord said, hey, test me in this, try me in this. Go ahead, ask for breakthrough in that in your life. Ask for deliverance. Ask for the provision. Maybe that was you. Lord, get me out of this. Help me with this. If you do, that'll just, that'll prove to me that you are true. Has he done that this week for you? Make good on your vow. He wants your heart. He wants your life. The eighth thing, verse 15, we offer sacrifices. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats. It's a little different nowadays. 
But the sacrifices that David was talking about, they were real. They were the widow whammies, the little lammies. The precious little lambs that had life and cuteness and coziness and wool and the bulls in their tough, muscular splendor. The dove and how they've been created. And, and these things would be slaughtered and split and ripped and torn apart. And their blood would pour forth from them. And they would be offered wholly upon an altar. This, of course, is a type of Jesus. The one who would be sacrificed for us. Our sacrifices, Hebrews tells us, are the fruit of our lips now, which are praise to our God. But it's most fit that there's a Selah at the end of verse 15 when he's pondering the sacrificial system because then we can be here in Prineville and we can pause and we can think about as brutal as the thousands of lambs and rams and bulls and partridges all of that sacrifice was, I mean, it was bloody. It was done to the creator of the universe who never did anything wrong. So that the created, who's done everything wrong, could be saved from his sin and be clothed in white robes of righteousness, brought back to the creator to have relationship forever. Selah. Think about it. Number nine, verse 16, testify. Come and hear all you who fear God and I will declare what he has done for my soul. Let's get Pentecostal. Let's testify. In our core groups, how great was it this week to testify of the day we got baptized, who and when and where it happened. When we stood publicly and said, I've been crucified with Christ, but I am alive in Christ Jesus. We testified. We shared our testimony. Get ready, people. God wants you to share your testimony in your core groups and your 242 groups. He doesn't want you to be the silent little, just so shy and I don't like people to look at me. He wants you to tell it. Proclaim it from the mountains. Shout it from the rooftops. What he has done for you. Verse 17, I cried to him with my mouth and he was extolled with my tongue. We testify, we bless, we shout out. Verse 18, the 10th, we repent. We repent. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I see iniquity in my heart, examine it in my inner self, and do not repent of it, am not moved to godly sorrow that brings about repentance, then my hypocritical prayers will not be heard. If I've seen it there, and I continue to gaze upon it without disgust, if I cherish my sin and call it my precious, if I excuse it and try to justify it, and then go and try to live a life of discipleship to the Lord, it's hypocritical. He cannot hear the prayer of the willfully unrepentant. If I willfully cling to any evil way, 
Nothing hinders prayer when we, like when we harbor sin in our heart. Proverbs speaks of this. Job speaks of this. John speaks of this. When Jesus says, now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Deuteronomy tells us that if we turn to idols and cherish them, that the heavens become as brass. Well, the good news is that there is grace and there is mercy. And the Holy Spirit shows us our sin and doesn't let us continue on stroking and petting our sin. He brings godly sorrow, he brings disgust, and he leads us to repentance. And that is why David, who has no shortage of sin in his life, says in verse 19, but certainly God has heard me. The answered prayers in his life showed that God had brought him out of that place of harboring sin in his heart. David was able to say, he has attended to the voice of my prayer. That is a sure sign that God loves us, that God's working in us, and that he who has begun a good work will be faithful to complete that work in sanctifying us out of our sin. This verse doesn't mean that we're never going to struggle and fumble and bumble along, but that the Holy Spirit continually brings us through process of confession and repentance and sorrow sanctifying us and setting apart from this wicked world, conforming us into the image of Christ. And so we close it out in verse 20. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Let's have the worship team come on up. And let's set our things aside. As we move to just praying We respond to the word of God this morning. Lord, as we remember a sacrifice that was made for us there in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, we remember the Christ, the Messiah, the creator of the world, taken outside the northern gates of Jerusalem and nailed to a tree, becoming a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. And that it was there where the sacrifice was made that salvation was purchased for all peoples, for all nations, for all tribes, for all tongues, And so, Lord, we just rejoice this morning with thankful hearts. We have partaken of communion and just communing hearts have been shored up this morning with a, remember, a, memory, a memory of your sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, that as Psalm 67, the next psalm says, you have blessed us you have been merciful to us in Christ Jesus and you have caused your face to shine upon us 
so that salvation can come to all people. So that your ways can be known among this world. And Lord, you know our American culture. You know our distractions. You've been a part of them. You've lived on this earth and they're very similar in many different cultures, Lord. You know that we have things vying for our attention and our affection. And Lord, would you be merciful to us and change our hearts. May the things of this world just be like putrid, rotten flesh compared to knowing you and living for you, Lord. Stir up in our hearts the shouting and the singing and the going and the seeing and the bowing and the being heard. The repenting, God. We know that in this place, there are people who are regarding iniquity in their hearts. They love sin. They let it rule in their life. They're not sorrowful over it. They're not grieved over it. There's been no repentance. Oh Lord, we just would ask that today, on the sovereign end of things, you would grant repentance at Calvary Chapel. And Lord, that we would rejoice in that. We would put away our idols. Rather, we would crush and destroy and burn our idols, disconnect our idols, cancel out our idols. And pursue righteousness in Jesus Christ. That you would be our God once again. And that we would pray with David. But God has heard me. Let's stand together. Let's let him in this last song. Put a firmness and a resolve in our hearts. To make his praise glorious. firm up in us that we will be a shouting, cheering people in regards to him, a singing people, a bowing people, praising people, a repenting people, a going people. Let's close in song together today.